Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, we are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Look Ahead Conference, Year Ahead, uh, which we are uh, having hosting here in our Bloomberg headquarters in New York. And Pim, you know, one conversation that is paramount this year is uh, corporate governance and the the amount that sexual harassment and other types of activities are kind of uh, hindering corporate growth. And this is something that obviously has been brought to the fore in part by Harvey Weinstein and the increasing allegations from a number of different uh, actresses about his unwanted uh, approaches of them and uh, and other, <laughs> other uh, people as well have been accused of similar attributes. And so this is something that is actually coming to the fore as a corporate issue and one that is important more than it has in a long time. Well, a corporate issue, yes, and a financial issue for those corporations. And, you know, just to make clear that there are a variety of different uh, sort of remedies that exist. And in the federal, in the government sphere, you'd think that there would be a process that would allow uh, that kind of uh, what you might restitution or, or payment uh, for this. But it's not so federal workers have a cap on the amount if let's say you were able to prove sexual harassment there is a cap on the punitive and compensatory damages they're based on the size uh, of the company and so if you are doing business with the the government and you are let's say only have between 15 and 100 employees you're only the cap is 50,000 you know so uh, the equal employment opportunity commission has a very different set of rules for almost every different business. You know, I, I, I have to say, Sam, uh, Sam, our producer, and I were talking about this, and, and one thing that really struck us is, you know, in a society where there is so much money and time spent putting, uh, in, creating a, a sense of beauty for women that sort of uh, flaunts their, their sort of sexual attributes, how that sort of plays into this whole uh, debate, and, and there has been uh, no one who has been more at the forefront of this entire debate uh, than Anita Hill, who is currently a professor of Law, Public Policy, and Women's Studies uh, at the Heller Graduate School of Policy and Management at Brandeis University in Washington, D.C. Of course, uh, she is known and became a national figure in 1991 when she accused U.S. Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas, her boss at the United States Department of Education uh, and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission of Sexual Harassment. Uh, And she joins us here today. Um, Professor Hill, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Do you think that things have gotten better since 1991 as far as people being receptive to accusations of sexual harassment and discussing them in an open way? I do think things have gotten better. I think the the latest media attention uh, is much better now. Uh, I think people are really pondering women's experiences differently now. Uh, They've stopped asking the question, uh, why didn't you come forward? And they're starting to really examine the behavior and the structures and people who keep the behavior in place. So I think this is an improved conversation. Uh, And we just need to take those next steps to end the problem. What are some of those next steps? Is it uh, recognizing 
the potential financial liability, let's say in a corporate setting, a reputational liability. I mean, obviously all those things play into it, but what would you see as some of the next steps? Well, one of the things that I think companies ought to do is to really assess their workplaces. There are a combination of things that need to be done in order to make change. And we know that from just history and, uh, and, and a whole history of social change in this country. Uh, some of the things that are structural uh, in terms of policies and procedures within the company, and some have to do with changing the culture of certain companies, culture that actually, in fact, encourage the behavior, and then other cultural aspects that uh, sort of minimize the behavior and say, well, it's not really that bad or anything that we need to be concerned about. And, of course, there's always the economic interest that a business has, and I know that that's what drives businesses. Uh, but the, the harassment does cost. It costs a business in terms of payments for people who harass, but it also costs in terms of the human resources. Uh, and that's something that companies need to take into account. But I also like to flip the question sometimes and, I say, and say, you know, what, how are you profiting from harassment? How, uh, what good, there's a, what benefit do you get as a company from having a culture that is harassing? When instead, what you should be looking for is making sure that people are judged on their merit and that they can perform to their fullest. You know, sometimes when uh, sexual harassment is in the news, you start getting a lot of backlash where, uh, you know, men in particular will say, well, does that mean that no man can ever hit on a woman or that, you know, if a woman is wearing, uh, you know, if she's putting herself together in a certain way and you, you can't comment on it, what's your response to that? Well, I think one of the things that I have heard very often is, you know, I, I, even in 1991 when people said, well, now we have to think about what we say. Well, there is no danger in thinking about what you say. Uh, in fact, we should all be quite thoughtful, especially now that we know um, what the problem is, that these are uh, situations that women uh, are finding themselves in, and some of their co-workers who are men find themselves in that make them uncomfortable, that really have no place in the workplace. Uh, it's time out for people saying, oh, well, you know, we used to be able to do this. Well, it's a new day, and women have spoken that they find it offensive. You know, if women don't find it offensive, then, you know, that's fine. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you should continue and keep pushing the issue when we have been put on, we've been putting people on notice that this is a problem in the workplace, and it's, it's hindering our abilities to do our job. It, does it also speak to the sort of lack of just good manners and, and you know, the way you treat other people? Because... This seems to be an issue not just about whether someone wants to have a sexual relationship or not. It's about power. And it's about the power that one person has over another person. And it just manifests itself in this way. But harassment doesn't necessarily mean sexual harassment. Well, there's sex-based harassment that can happen in, on any, you know, to any number of people. There's a sexual harassment that we're talking about that's been in the news lately. But you're absolutely right. Um, this typically can manifest itself um, in different forms depending on the person who is exhibiting it and the person who they talk to. So it can... Uh, harassment can come in the form of racist harassment. It can come in the form of homophobic harassment. It can come in uh, the form of all kinds of, of, of uh, language that is inappropriate and that is offensive 
and that really has no benefit, gives no benefit to the workplace. Uh, I, 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 you know, it is at some point a level uh, on the level of civility. How much civility are we going to try to promote in a workplace? But there is something that is very special and peculiar about sexual harassment. When you look at the numbers, and they range, but some of the the numbers uh, suggest that as many as 40 to 50 percent of the women in a workforce are being harassed, sexually harassed. So we know that this is a peculiar problem, but there are variations on the thing. Well, and we talk about big corporations and we talk about Hollywood. Uh, what about government, right? I mean, we're hearing an increasing amount uh, about uh, allegations with the government. President Trump uh, was caught on tape uh, talking about doing whatever he wanted uh, with people. I mean, do you get the sense that, first of all, Clarence Thomas would be on the Supreme Court today uh, had he faced the same kinds of uh, challenges as he did back in 1991? I'm not sure that there would have been a nomination that it would have, could have gone forward had there been allegations uh, of harassment. I'm not sure we would have even had the hearing, is what I'm saying. So you can't go back and say in time and say, would this have happened if X? <laughs> because I mean, we wouldn't be talking about it if that hearing hadn't occurred. Well, but do you think that there are procedures that are uh, appropriate and adequate in Congress right now and just in general and throughout Washington to prevent this? Well, I think that if, if there was a nominee, uh, my uh, complaint or my statement to the Senate Judiciary Committee came before the vote and before the hearing in which I testified, I think that the procedure would be to take that kind of complaint very seriously before you pushed a nomination through. So I think we're in a different place now. Uh, the presumption at that point was always either that it didn't happen or that it didn't matter, and I, uh, the harassment. And I don't think that we're willing to, to make that bold a statement right now about what's going on in the workplaces that we all live in. A lot of times the conversation becomes broad and it goes under the heading of corporate governance. Mm -hmm. Do you think it would be valuable to put an actual grade or a rate? I mean, companies that pollute, they might get a grade. Companies that don't enforce a sexual harassment-free environment for people, they would get a grade. Do you think that would get any traction in terms of investors? Because, as you said, you have a workforce that feels harassed in any way, they're not going to be doing their best work. They're not going to be doing their best work, and we know now that these are not about just personal decisions. These are, these, uh, examining it is about a business decision, too. And uh, with all the kind of media platforms that we have now, reputations can be out there on the record. And I think that that is perhaps a coming wave of things that people are going to be putting things on social media. You know, with that, that's what happened at Uber. You know, one bog put that on the record and other people stepped up. So, no, we are not. And they will be grading whether or not there is an official grade. Reputation is at stake. And um, I know that there's new studies that, says that say that uh, the reputation really is what uh, really is motivating uh, companies to behave differently or to put into place different 
different policies and processes to end a, a problem or to react to a problem, maybe fire someone to to change the culture. So I, you're absolutely right, and the uh, social media is the conduit. Thank you very much for spending time with us. Anita Hill is a professor of law, public policy, and women's studies at the Heller Graduate School of Policy and Management at Brandeis University. Thank you. We are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Year Ahead Conference in our world headquarters here in New York. And uh, one of the big questions for the year ahead is, uh, in the age of Netflix and Amazon Prime, how does a company like IMAX compete? And here to uh, address that is Richard Gelfand, Chief Executive Officer of IMAX, which is based in Stony Brook, New York. But he joins us uh, here in our uh, 731 Lexington headquarters. So uh, can you address that? How do you, how do you compete? I think in certain respects, the modern streaming trends help a company like IMAX because streaming definitionally is on a small device. Usually it's in your home or in your office. And I think people want a fuller life than that. I used to say, you know, if you want to be chained to your couch, sure, that's, a, that's one way to live your life. But if you want to get out of your home, you want something really special to do it. So if you go to a regular multiplex theater, let's say, and it smells of popcorn and the... Uh, um, you know, it's noisy and people are yelling. That might not be enough of a difference to stop you from streaming and do something social. But in the case of IMAX, it's a fabulous experience. It can't be replicated in the home unless you want to spend millions of dollars. And it, you know, it really provides you with a reason. Um, last night, I was at a Springsteen, the play here in New York on Broadway. I mean, I could buy the, I could stream it. I could listen to the music in lots of ways. But this amazing experience, immersive experience, is why you go. And I think IMAX is part of that trend. All right, so we got the immersive experience, and obviously the, it's great if the movie so the experience is a hit, right? I mean, if people really want to, want to do that. Can you speak to the, the challenge that you have with the actual uh, content providers? Because we've been following, for example, the uh, report that Disney at one point was holding negotiations to purchase 21st Century Fox. Now, you are as much a technology company as you are a sort of beholden to the theater world. Does having smaller numbers of, of, uh, of content providers make it more challenging for you? You know, I think maybe the opposite. And the reason I would say that is because we do blockbuster films. We do, you know, larger than life kind of movies. We did Thor this weekend and we did $25 million worldwide in Thor. And so we're not really interested in the mid-level and the small movies. And I think to the extent big content providers come together, they could afford more budgets and more blockbuster films, higher production value, the kinds of things that really work in IMAX. We've also experimented with alternative content. So we did episodes of the Game of Thrones in IMAX this year. We did a Marvel TV series, the pilots for Inhumans in IMAX. So How did they do? Uh, at the, they did okay. I mean, the one on um, Game of Thrones was kind of amazing because it was last year's episodes that you could kind of reruns you could get on TV and people paid $15 for them. Inhumans was, was the beginning of a TV series which people didn't know. And I think one of the problems we had, we were really excited about doing Marvel, but I think people expected production values commensurate with a Marvel film. And when it was a TV pilot, not a Marvel film, uh, you know, we did $3 million, so it wasn't terrible, but people didn't distinguish that. 
In five years from now, do you think that IMAX will be thought of as much uh, as a virtual reality company as it is uh, the, the massive screen and very big production kinds of films? I wish that was the case, but I don't think so. Um, we are playing around with virtual reality, as you know, and we have a number of VR test pilots, but um, that's go it's going to take a while. I think the VR experience is amazing. Um, we, we at IMAX have a CEO conference. We invite speakers in, and I invited one person who was helped invent the technology and another who makes films. And on a one to 10 scale, I asked them to rate VR technology today and the films today, and they both independently said one. So I think we're trying to do the best VR there is in the world today. Well, but I think it's a long way until it gets where it's going to go. One tension here is the amount of money that's required to invest in virtual reality or bigger and better experiences, uh, paired with the fact that, yes, people want experiences, but there's a limit to how much they're willing to pay for them. How are you addressing that tension, and how is that sort of challenging your balance sheet? Well, it's, it's not, because we're, it's not challenging our balance sheet, because we're doing it as a pilot, and we're eliminating the tension by doing it slowly and not spending a lot of money. So we're opening 10 pilots around the world. We now have four open, New York, LA, um, Toronto, and in Shanghai. And we're monitoring them in a, in a cost-efficient way. So if it starts slowly, we're not going to spend a lot of money. And we're not going to push it. But if it takes off and it really works, we're going to put a lot more money in. And that's kind of what I was addressing. I don't think it's ripe for prime time now. I think it's going to take a number of years until it gets to the point, back to your question, where it exceeds the image of our company as big screens. I think it works very well, it's complimentary, but it's going to take a while. You mentioned big screens. I want to talk about a big market, China. Tell people what you're doing there because uh, that's a different, you can't just you know, import what goes on in one place into another and expect it to do well. Well, that was exactly the model we tried, what you're alluding to in your question, which is I started going to China almost 20 years ago, and I met with the government, and I met with studios, and we really tried to build something that was much more organically Chinese than a lot of U.S. companies do. So now we have 150 employees in China. We're a public company on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. We have a Chinese CEO. We, we have Chinese content in China. So we have about 500 theaters now open. We do about 10% of the Chinese box office when we're involved with a movie, either a Chinese movie or a US movie. And we're as comfortable in Chinese Hollywood as we are in this Hollywood. Thank you very much for being with us in our uh, world headquarters. Much appreciated. Uh, Richard Gelfond is the chief executive of IMAX Corp. He's all about the experience. You're listening to Bloomberg. BIA making a move today. Um, I want to talk now about, uh, well, I want to bring in Will Marshall. He is the co-founder and the chief executive of Planet, uh, based in San Francisco. And just to kind of set the, the context, Lisa, you know, one of the things I like to do is look about uh, space programs and NASA. And in 2010, there was a solar uh, satellite, a, a dynamics observatory that was launched by NASA. It weighed 6,800 pounds and it cost $850 million to build. That's expensive. Our next guest, Will Marshall, has a way to maybe bring down the cost of something like that. Will, thanks for being with us here. No problem. So is that kind of an accurate way to kind of 
look at the chronology of what we'd like to see happen? Absolutely, and what we have done at Planet is miniaturize satellites. We've taken satellites that are the size of a bus and bring, brought them down. Prime, most of the cost of, involved with satellites is the launch cost. And so SDO that you just mentioned you know, would have taken up a single whole rocket, and rockets are expensive. Um, by miniaturizing the satellites, we can launch many, many satellites in one rocket, um, thus uh, bringing the cost down and therefore the, the data, the cost per unit data down uh, by many orders of magnitude. And this is possible because of the leveraging of consumer electronics which have miniaturized sensors and processors and hard drives for things like smartphones. So we leverage that to miniaturize satellites. So how cheap is a cheap satellite? Um, orders of magnitude less than the... Uh, the one that uh, your colleague just referred to. Like $1,000? No. Can, we, no, can no, anyone no, no, no. just no, no, go no, buy no. a satellite? He, he wants I mean, to stay in business. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, we have to sell our data, and we don't like to talk about the cost of the satellites themselves, um, but we brought down the cost of the imagery by many orders of magnitude. All right, so let's talk about the practical application yes. of this imagery. First of all, have you already uh, started to sell that data to yes. a number of different industries? Can you give us a sense of what they are and how it's being used? Absolutely. Firstly, uh, yeah, we've launched more than 200 satellites. It's the largest fleet of satellites in history, and we're getting uh, about 340 million square kilometers of imagery down every day. We image the entire Earth every single day. What that enables us to do is rapid change, see rapid changes over the planet. Um, the industries that are interested in that include agriculture, consumer mapping, governments. So in agriculture, uh, what, we've, uh, what we see is that the people, we can help improve crop yields by giving in-season diagnostics. So we sell it to big ag companies. We can tell crop yield on a pixel-by-pixel -pixel basis, and then they can inform the farmer when to add water, when to add fertilizer during the growing season to help improve the crop yield. Um, in consumer mapping, that's companies like Google that buy our data to have up-to-date satellite imagery layers on their, on their satellite imagery layer uh, maps. Um, and then um, uh, governments use it from a, ra a range of things, from security to um, things like uh, response to the, the hurricanes that have been right. happening here recently or the, the earthquake in Mexico. Uh, so disaster response. Can I ask you a question? Whenever I think about people uh, shooting things up into the atmosphere and, and, and sort of uh, satellite uh, revolving the Earth, I think about all the trash or sort of all yes. of the, the refuse. Is that a problem for you? Uh, not for us, uh, but it is a problem. Uh, satellite debris, uh, space debris is yeah. a big problem. There's, there's about 30 million pieces of man-made debris orbiting the Earth. I worked on this for many years when I was at NASA. It's mainly up at higher orbits where uh, the Russians and the Americans uh, put a lot of their satellites back in the early part of the space age and didn't realize that this could have this uh, effect of, uh, of, of where debris hits debris and then causes more debris that then causes, increases the collision. So we actually have a runaway situation um, in certain altitudes. It's very slow, but just like climate change, the sooner you nip it in the bud, the better. Now, we stay out of that problem by keeping our satellite way lower in orbits like more like 400 to 500 kilometers, where that stuff is 800 to 1,200 kilometers up. At 400 to 500 kilometers, there's very little stuff, and it re-enters because of atmospheric decay after a couple of years. So it gets quickly out of the way. But it is a problem we have to address. What about the problem of raising money? Doesn't seem like it's a problem because you're smiling. Uh, sure. Uh, we, we've raised a bunch of capital from uh, venture capitalists in the Bay Area who are interested both in the commercial applications of this data and also the, the fact that it can do a lot of good. Um, so there, there's a huge amount of good that can come from this data set too. Do you ever have to refuse to sell your data to certain governments or do you have to vet? We do have to vet. Um, I mean, it is important uh, to, to be in, uh, stewards of this data. 
um, to, to try and have the most positive impact and, and of course economic impact for us. We care about uh, revenue, but the point is that, uh, that, that yes, uh, and, and, and there are certain regulations, of course we can't sell the data to North Korea or to Iran and th things like that. Thank you so much for joining us. It's hey. truly fascinating. Uh, Will, no Will Marshall, uh, co-founder and chief executive officer of Planet, which is based in San Francisco, also uh, formerly of NASA, and uh, fascinating stories. Uh, I have to, I have to just uh, plug a story that Ashley Vance of Bloomberg Businessweek wrote uh, that include a lot of really colorful details about your past. I highly recommend it. Uh, the, the title of the article is "The Tiny Satellites Ushering in the New Space Revolution." is one of the world's most successful and wealthiest individuals. Uh, the uh, talking about Eric Schatzker. Yes, there you go. Well done. All right. <laughs> then let's just bring him in. Eric Schatzker is our editor-at-large for Bloomberg Lu News. And uh, Eric... Uh, let's, I was, let's clear up him who we're really talking about, <laughs> well, shall we? I, I'm just saying, I'm hoping a little, maybe just it rubs off a little bit. But it, it, seriously, the, the gentleman I'm really speaking about is uh, Al-Walid bin Talal al-Saud. Which Correct. is his full name. Uh, Saudi it, Prince. Yes, indeed. And uh, you know him perhaps better than most of us because you have spent uh, quite a bit of time with him over a period of years. And you most recently uh, had a late night dinner uh, with him. And that really doesn't go anywhere near describing the experience. I'm wondering if you could tell us who he is to you and your experience with him. And then maybe give us your perspective on his most recent arrest uh, by the uh, Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. Of course, happy to. Of course, the reason we are talking about Al-Walid bin Talal is that he was swept up in this anti-corruption probe along with 10 other princes, a bunch of former ministers, some Saudi businessmen, and his whereabouts today and the whereabouts of all those other people are unknown. I saw him less than two weeks ago in Saudi Arabia. I was there for the Future Investment Initiative. This was a financial and economic conference put on by uh, Mohammed bin Salman and the Public Investment Fund, which is Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund. Mohammed bin Salman, of course, being the crown prince, the son of the current king, King Salman. And after that conference was over on Thursday, I went out to uh, Al-Walid's desert camp as part of a small caravan. Uh, we got there. We uh, spent the evening in the desert. It involved, as you said, a dinner, which was quite lavish. It involved watching a soccer match in the open air uh, on some large screen TVs that he had set up. We sat on these elaborate, gigantic rugs against cushions. Um, we talked about politics, which is one of his favorite subjects, U.S. politics, in fact. We talked, about, we talked, excuse me, about Brexit, which he described to me as stupid. We talked about tech stocks because, as you may recall, that was sort of Super Thursday. Google was reporting, or Alphabet, if you prefer. Uh, Amazon was reporting. And Al-Walid is an investor in tech stocks, has been for a long time. Twitter, he's a he's current investor, investor in, Twitter. in Twitter. He's a current investor in Lyft. And um, we, uh, we spent a very pleasant evening together. And over the course of those several hours, I developed no inkling whatsoever well, that 
all of this was going to transpire only 10 days later. Well, and this is what I wanted to get at with you. I mean, you said in your article that you wrote on the Bloomberg, you did not get any sense uh, that None. there was anything imminent or, or that he had any uh, sense of that. But just reading through the tea leaves, what could potentially uh, have put him in the crosshairs of the current heir apparent and, and frankly, uh, the de facto ruler right now of Saudi Arabia? There's probably two things. Uh, one is the idea, and this is really a theory because we haven't heard from him on the subject himself, that Mohammed bin Salman, acting with the full support of his father, King Salman, is determined to eliminate, if you will, uh, and I don't mean that in a euphemistic way, eliminate dissent or freedom of expression in Saudi Arabia while he is trying to consolidate power. And the second is that possibly Prince Al-Walid in some way, shape, or form represented a different kind of a threat. Now, what kind of a threat could it be? Under the old king, King Abdullah, there were, if you will, warring factions in the royal family. And the fact that they were all pitted against one another in a strange way maintained a sense of stability. This king and his son are approaching uh, Saudi politics, if you will, Saudi rule in a totally different way. It is auto much more autocratic, and the power is centralized under Mohammed bin Salman. And so if Al-Walid were part, and I don't have any facts to corroborate this, Understood. if he were part of one of those other factions, perhaps the crown prince perceived him as some kind of a threat. Let's also add to the fact, add to that, that he is wealthy, independently wealthy, doesn't get his money from Aramco, if you will, like almost all the other Saudi royals do. He's made it as an investor. He's really well connected. He's personal friends with Bill Gates and Rupert Murdoch, for example. And as a result, he wields influence. And perhaps that influence presents a threat to the crown. But again, these are all theories. Now let's talk about the other one, which is the dissent, freedom of expression part. And for, the, for that, we actually do have a piece of evidence. Back in February of 2015, Al-Walid had started an Arabic-language news channel based in Bahrain. And that news, news channel, I should add, actually had a partnership agreement with Bloomberg. We were going to provide them with information and with data. And that channel was shut down by the Bahraini government on day one. It never reopened. Now, it appears that the cardinal mistake that Al-Arab, that was the name of the news channel, made was interviewing a Bahraini opposition politician because the Bahraini government subsequently issued a statement saying that the channel had failed to respect the need to fight terrorism and extremism. And it was a signal that Al-Walid and the channel itself had misread, if you will, the degree to which Bahrain, and more importantly Saudi Arabia, its economic sponsor and neighbor, were willing to tolerate dissent and freedom of expression. And while on the surface it appears that Mohammed bin Salman is modernizing the Saudi economy and liberalizing social values, and he wants to return to a pre-Wahhabi form of Islamism, uh, he does not appear to tolerate dissent well. So, if under the surface there was a lot more of that going on, he perceived Al-Walid as a voice of free expression, as a voice of dissent. That, too, may have been one of the reasons to take him into custody. Officially, this is according to an official in the Saudi government whom Bloomberg spoke to, the charges against him are money laundering, bribery, and extortion. So they have nothing to do with dissent. 
They have nothing to do of course. ostensibly no with royal politics. But we have to at least contemplate the possibility that there are other things involved. Every conspiracy theorist is heading in that direction. Of course, there is a possibility that some of those charges are based on fact, but the Saudi government has not shared with us any of that evidence and probably won't because it doesn't operate. The criminal justice system doesn't operate there the way that it does here. We're told that due process will be granted to these people, that they're going to get legal representation, that they're going to have a day in court, but who knows whether that procedure bears any resemblance to what we know here or what we know, if you will, in the Western world. Eric Schatzker, thank you so much for joining us and for writing the story. I highly recommend it. I dined with Al-Walid in the desert days before his arrest. Eric Schatzker is an editor-at-large for Bloomberg News, and he joins us here uh, where we are broadcasting live from Bloomberg's The Year Ahead Summit in our New York headquarters. Fascinating story. Quickly, just how was the food? It was pretty good when you dine with Al-Walid, yes, I have to say. I had some lamb, I had some shrimp, I had some rice salads. It's... um there's a lot on offer, at least two dozen courses. Wow. I was, I, kind, of, I was kind of picky. I, I could deal with a course right now. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.